If you brought a Bible today, I invite you to open it to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Before I start, I just want to say, Sonia, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your faith and for your example. God has been good to you. And that's your life story. So thank you for sharing with us. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been on a series through the book of Mark, and throughout the book of Mark, we see again and again the reader being called to consider two questions. The first is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And the second is who do you believe he is? Who do you believe he is? Over and over, the evangelist Mark presents, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, examples demonstrating, declaring that Jesus is indeed the chosen Messiah of God, sent by God to bring salvation to mankind. So today's passage will be along the same line. It will present those two questions. But it will do so in a little different fashion. Today we're going to look at a courtroom drama. A courtroom drama where apparently Jesus is on trial. And for some reason courtroom dramas tend to capture our attention. Whether it's in a television show whether it's in the newspaper, sometimes courtroom dramas go on and on, and if they linger and they're exciting, sometimes we stay glued to that. Perhaps it's because we want to know who's going to win. Will they be found guilty? But today we have a courtroom drama where, again, Jesus is on trial. And I think this case follows that expectation of keeping us glued. So if you will, look with me at Mark chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, 
he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that you are God omnipresent. So you were present when this event took place. You witnessed this and you orchestrated it. And it is written now for us to study and to learn from. I ask, Father, that you would cause our hearts to recognize Christ in this, the Chosen One, the One judged for our sin, and the One who took our place, that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this court case, it's important to recognize a couple of things. First of all, Jesus is being charged by religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, religious council, with religious crimes such as blasphemy, being a false messiah. These charges they raised about him to bring him into conflict not only with Jewish law, but Roman law. And by the way, the charges, of course, were false. Not because he did not claim to be God, 
but because he was who he really claimed to be. He was God. And so though ultimately ruled by the Roman government, the Jewish authorities were given a certain measure of civil jurisdiction under the hand of Rome to exercise authority, to hold court hearings, and to bring punishment in this area of Judea. But the religious council, as much as they had jurisdiction in their area, ultimately did not have authority under Roman rule to exercise the sword. The right of the sword was Rome's rule alone. Therefore, in order for the religious authorities to have grounds to bring Jesus to execution, he needed to be worthy or found guilty of a crime worthy of Roman execution. Blasphemy wouldn't do it. Being a false messiah wouldn't do it. Jesus was therefore charged by the Roman authorities with the incendiary charge of high treason that he was claiming to be king of the Jews. And when that came up, there was absolutely no way that Rome could dismiss that charge. That had to be heard because that challenged the rule of Caesar. So Jesus is bound and he's brought before the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate. If you look down at verse 2, here's what we see. He's bound before Pilate and Pilate says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Luke gives us further insight into some of the charges that were being brought against him. Pilate asks, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And Luke, we're told that Jesus was claiming to, Jesus was claimed to have aspirations to be king, to forbid people to pay taxes, and to incite people to riot. So when Pilate asks him, do you have any defense? He remains strangely silent. It's a deafening silence. This was the time that he could defend himself. And yet Jesus says nothing to deter the process. Pilate was amazed. Also in the context here, if you read it, there's indication that Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent. And Jesus knew he was innocent. So the two most powerful people in that room, biblically speaking, believed Jesus was innocent. And yet Jesus says nothing. Is that not curious? I hope you can see that from the very beginning of a trial that turns out to be a mockery, in the midst of it, there's an immense trust that Jesus has in his Father. That the one writing the script of this from the beginning is not Pontius Pilate, is not the chief priests. The one writing the script of this was his Father. The tension grows. 
couple things to say about the context of this passage. First, as I mentioned, Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent, and that will come out later. Secondly, Pilate was known to have a great contempt for the Jewish leaders. He didn't want to give them any favors. There was an animosity that existed against the Jewish leaders. So, as the crowd continued to raise their voice and energy towards a riotous fashion, Pilate, using his own political power, sought to handle the crowd. He also wanted to appease his own conscience, and so he was going to use a political chip. He had the right to grant amnesty to one prisoner at the feast, which was his custom. He offered as a choice to the people, which some commentators said was a sure shoe-in that they would release Jesus. He offers to them a convicted murderer, Barabbas. Give them Barabbas and they'll for sure choose Jesus. However, the voice of the crowd chose different. The voice of the crowd continued to grow. Crowd growing all the more intense. Crying out for the release of Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. To which Pilate then says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They didn't have to say, crucify him. But they did. Crucify him. Crucify him. Though Pilate could have absolved him, he yielded to the riotous crowd. Verse 15. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, i.e. make an end to his own political means, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. In that one decision, Pilate sentenced an innocent man to the world's most horrendous form of execution and allowed a convicted, known felon to go free. Does that not hint a little bit of the gospel? Innocent man, innocent God, being convicted and held guilty. Guilty man, guilty of murder, set free. From a human perspective, as we read this, or at least as I read this, and I read about the false accusation, and I read of the trumped-up charges, and I read of the unjust outcome, I got a little incensed. Lord, why did you let this happen? Why did the precious Son of God have to go this? Maybe you have that response. But that's a human perspective. And I think Scripture calls us to look more so at a divine perspective. Because from a divine perspective, there's a much larger global message being spoken. And that's for all time. And there's also a much more specific message for the followers of Jesus who were there on the scene. Some, I'm sure, were witnesses 
to his trial. And lest we forget, there were believers and followers who were looking on at this event. And there were original hearers and recipients of this letter. They too would pay for their lives, with their lives for following Jesus. Um, Some of them knew what it meant to follow and give their life. And as they watched Jesus, I'm sure in the back of their mind, they asked, is this going to be my end? I believe that as they watched, there are three things. And again, the early church who received this, I believe there's three things that we can learn from this. I'm sure there's more. Firstly, it's this. The trial of Jesus confirmed his identity and affirmed the sovereign plan of God. The trial of Jesus confirmed his identity and affirmed the sovereign plan of God. If you haven't noticed, which I'm sure you have, that to hang out with Jesus at this time was not safe, it was not good in the authorities' eyes, and it was dangerous. To be with Jesus meant you could be a very, it could be a costly thing. Jesus paid with his life. People who became followers of Jesus were not just agreeing to a philosophy, they were agreeing to surrender their life. Let me say that again. The people who were following Jesus at that time, the early readers, the early church, the ones to whom this letter would be written, when they ascribed to follow Jesus, didn't ascribe just to his philosophy, though they did. They were signing on to possibly pay with their life. That's the challenge. So for them, it was critical. Is this one that I'm giving my life for the Messiah? Is he the one? Imagine following a leader and all of a sudden he gets placed and put in charges. There tends to be a time, as it happened with this, when everybody fled and deserted Jesus. And yet they looked on. And they were asking the question, is he the Messiah? That's relevant for us as we look on. Mark asks us that question. Do you believe Jesus? And I think we have to ask, what does that mean? When you talk about faith, and when theologians talk about faith, there's three different levels about it. First, it's, and these are, the, these are Latin words, noticia, which means there's an understanding of faith. There's an understanding of who Jesus is. Yes, I believe Excuse me. Yes, I know it's written that he's the Son of God. The second aspect of faith is a census. means I agree that he's the Son of God. I agree he's the one sent from God. I agree he's the one who has been brought to earth to save man. Notitia, a census, the first two steps of faith. And if you believe that, or if you agree to those... You could be an absolutely excellent demon. The devil knows that well. 
The third step, I don't know if I can repeat the Latin. <laughs> Notitia or knowledge, a census, agreeing to. But the third step is called fiducia. It's from which we get the word fiduciary. It means I put my trust. Do you put your trust in Jesus? Do you give the surrender of your life to Jesus? If I were to ask you, do you believe that if you needed to fly from Richmond to San Diego, of all places across the country, do you believe a plane could take you there? You probably would say, of course I do. So in order to do that, you have a knowledge of how to get there. You go and you buy an airplane ticket. That's the knowledge. And then a census would mean that you're going to need to actually do the buying of the ticket and walk to the ticket counter and so forth and get the ticket and walk down the ramp to the airplane. But at some point, you need to take a step across from the ramp onto the plane. And you need to, and I don't want to start scaring people about flying, but you need to step into the plane and put your hands in the life of one that you have never met, you hope got enough sleep that night, you hope isn't a newbie just taking his first flight, but you're putting your hands into the trust of that one. When we consider who Jesus is, he's not asking us just for philosophical assent. He's asking us to give all of our life over to him, come what may, come what might not may. Come difficulty, come trial. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? His promises are true. He will prove true. The early church as they witnessed this trial, were asking, will I give my life? Would I surrender? Jesus, if you look at Mark 8.31, and we might have that displayed, just a few days before this, as a good shepherd, caring for his sheep, said this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be Killed. Notice what it says at the end. And after three days, rise. Mark 10.45. Previous verses, they heard him say this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom. Jesus had told them that's what's going to happen. They didn't want that. They didn't want to see him suffer. They were also aware of a passage in Isaiah that spoke of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 7, that says this, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine as they're looking on, what they were thinking, is this the Messiah? He's fulfilling what Isaiah says. I believe that as the early church saw this and they witnessed this, it helped them to be strengthened, to trust this is 
the Messiah. I believe most of all that as they watch this, their hearts were encouraged that it's not the winds of chance that are writing the script before them, but it's the sovereign hand of God, as I said. God is writing that. God was ultimately at work behind the scenes orchestrating this. Jesus' death was no accident. The means of his death was no accident. And therefore, the trial and execution of Jesus is no accident. It didn't happen as a byproduct of Pilate's whims. It happened because God was scripting this. Mark 13, 9 through 13 says this. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And they will bring you to trial and deliver over, deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I can't imagine what they were thinking. I can't imagine what it would be like to sign up to follow a leader who says, that's probably what's going to happen to you. Until I met Jesus. I have a friend who lives here in Midlothian. He's from a Middle Eastern country that I'm not going to mention. And he tells me the story of how when he converted to Christianity in that country. And he says it very matter-of-factly. He said, my family demanded my blood. We were just standing at a soccer game, and he just drops that on me as we were talking. And I said, excuse me? They were going to get you a blood test? He said, no. When I converted to Christianity... They demanded my death and they were responsible under Sharia law to take it. He had the opportunity to leave the country, to come to the United States. All of his family did not. And unfortunately, many people in the country did not. Folks, we must remember that there's a cost, that there's a cost to following Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God. And this is not all there is. This is not what life is completely about. This is not our home. We are not home yet. I don't know about you, but I can become very comfortable and want to have my life set up in steps. And I don't like when things come to rattle it. But God in His mercy will rattle my cage and will say, you're not home yet. I remember my dear father 
who was a general surgeon. I remember him, and he was not a particularly... Um, spe- he didn't speak. He wasn't an emotional man. But I remember him going to funerals of friends. And he had dealt with death on a regular basis. And I remember him looking at them and compassionately just saying, this is not all there is. There's more. This is not our home. And it brought such comfort to me as I heard that. Folks, if we're going to follow Jesus, he's called us and created us to follow him with heaven as the goal not this earth. Point number two. I believe this trial demonstrates the demand for God's judgment and the payment for sin. The demand for God's judgment and the payment for sin. Throughout Scripture, there's numerous Old Testament references to the practice of the priest transferring the sins of the people onto the Lamb And the lamb being sacrificed is a temporary covering for sin. There's also a prediction of one who would come, a Messiah, who would be the chosen lamb of God. Lamb who would come and perfectly, for all time's sake, take away the sin of the world. One key verse from Isaiah speaking about that says this. All we like sheep have gone away. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Notice the end of verse 6 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice verse 8 says that by judgment he was taken away. The end of verse 8 says that he was stricken for transgression. The end of our passage here in Mark becomes R-rated. And it describes something graphic that Jesus endured. Mark 15, verse 15 says this, and let's let's be careful not to gloss over. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. Reading a description of scourging. A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, sometimes simply thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by Mark, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather cords plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. 
No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law. And men condemned to flagellation frequently died in the co- and collapsed from the flogging. Josephus, the historian, records that he himself had some of his personal opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. This is, friends, just some of the punishment laid on Christ. After that, as we continue in verse 16, with his body beaten, the soldiers led him outside. They called together the whole battalion. It certainly wasn't so that they could contain this man who might run away. Why did they call him together? They clothed him in a purple cloak, representing royalty. Twisting together a crown of thorns, representing a crown. And they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. Spitting on him. Kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his clothes. This all preceded the crucifixion. Friends, there is a high cost for sin. Sin before God is not funny. Sin before God cost him his son. And for all of the terminology that's placed upon Christians that you all are just so caught up in this sinful stuff and the devil made me do it, there is coming an answer. And so Christian, when you, before God, say, I need to work on my sin. God is glorified. When you seek to turn away from sin, when you seek to walk in holiness before God, though the world might laugh, God stands as your cheerleader and says, Thank you. That brings me honor. There's a high cost for sin. It's shown and the beating of the sun. And friends, our sin is an offense to God. There is a penalty that must be paid. For the person without saving faith in Jesus, there remains a judgment still to pay. You owe a debt to God. You'll never be able to pay it as good as you might try to be. This trial should remind us there is a judgment for sin. But that's not the end of the story. 
Thanks be to God. This trial also demonstrates the truth of the amazing gospel of grace. The good news, the gospel that we celebrate, is that God has provided a payment for that sin, for the debt that was owed him, the pearl of great price, the Son of God himself. The punishment and judgment, that was due the sinner. Rightly due the sinner. Because of the offense towards God, rightly due the sinner. That punishment was poured out on Christ. Thanks be to God. He was a sinless man. That was the sinless being condemned so the guilty could go free. That's the amazing news of the gospel. For those who come to Christ, for those who surrender their life and faith to Christ, that gift of righteousness is given to them. How good that is. What great news that is. So that we stand before God righteous. The essence of the gospel is that the just died for the unjust. The innocent, who was innocent, was made guilty. So that the guilty, you and I, can go free. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. We read, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, Barabbas, and having scourged him, he delivered him to be crucified. Don't miss the amazing grace in that verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, says this, For our sake he made him, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. He knew no sin. So that in Him, in Christ, in faith, we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, if there is one thing that I would want to communicate from my heart today, it's this. That if you have faith in Christ born out of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, because that's where saving faith comes from. You stand righteous before God, and you will never, ever be more righteous than you are today. Ever. Chris, you don't know what I do. You don't know my sins. I don't. God does. And He's declared, in the midst of my sinfulness... God declares me and accounts me righteous under the righteous work of Christ with His righteousness. I stand, you stand, righteous before God. Does that mean that God then has favor on me like I'm a perfect person? Yes! All the favor of God. But Chris, my life isn't heaven. You're not home yet. And we have work to do. But before God, brother, before God, sister, God looks at you 
as my son, my daughter, with the righteousness of Christ. There is no better news. There is no better news. There is nothing more important to give our lives for. And if we've given our life to Christ, he calls us to enter in to declaring that message. I end with a quote from Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite living theologians. He says this, As believers, we must steadily keep in mind that Christ has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. Never again should we fear the retributive justice of God. Yet many believers do live under a sense of fear of God's justice or judgment. We know we sin continually, and sometimes the painful awareness of our sin almost overwhelms us. One morning in my private devotions, I was reflecting on my sin, and for some reason it was particularly painful to me that day. In my discouragement, I blurted out, God, you would be perfectly just in sending me to hell. Immediately on the heels of those words, though, came this thought. No, you wouldn't, because Jesus satisfied your justice for me. And he's done that for you. This is the stand we must take as believers. We must not allow the accusations of Satan or the condemning indictments of our consciences to bring us under a sense of God's unrequited justice. Instead, we should, by faith, lay hold of the wonderful truth. God's justice has been satisfied by our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the trial of Jesus reveals his identity. He is the one who God has sent to take away the sin of the world. All judgment of God was laid upon him. And in that event, the just and the innocent died for the guilty that we could be declared righteous. Let's pray together. stand amazed at the mercy of God for the ones who brought him to trial and the ones who applied the scourge he died for Father thank you for the amazing mercy shown to us through your son Thank you, Father, for the story of God sending His Son to search and to save those who are lost. Father, we are grateful.